Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm very fine. Thank you, Glenn. I hope you're fine, too. I am. I'm doing well. This is Glenn Lowry. It's the Glenn Show uh, at uh, Substack.com. GlennLowry.Substack.com. Also at BloggingHeads.tv. I'm with Richard Epstein. Richard is, uh, who are you, Richard? You are the uh, Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and you're also the Lawrence Tisch Professor of Law at the New York University Law School, and you're emeritus at the University of Chicago Law School, and you're author of many books, a legal theorist, a legal scholar, law and economics guy, and uh, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. So welcome. And nice to be here. Uh, indeed, we, I think, all are blessed to be here, especially in the shadow of COVID-19. I had a bout with the daily disease and managed my wife and I to escape relatively unscathed. So thankful for that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, Richard, you are uh, serving in pro bono counsel to a consortium that are trying to prevent uh, the construction of the Obama Presidential Center in Chicago. Do I get that right? Um, You get it completely right. It is a very odd consortium. As you know, I'm a classical liberal, generally believes in small government. And my my coalition consists of all progressive organizations who share in many ways the same kind of concern. One of the ways to think about this case and its left-right coalition is to think about the Kilo case, as you recall, where the question was whether or not the government could force Miss Suzette Kilo out of her pink house uh, claiming that it was done for urban development. Uh, there was a lot of shenanigans that went on in the New London City Council. Uh, they won. They forced her off. Then Pfizer left town, and the place became a rubble um, after, after her house was removed. And the left disliked this intensely because they thought it was powerful industry taking over. And the right disliked this intensely because they saw this as a private property takeaway under a false claim that economic development counts for public use in the Constitution. This case invents exactly the same political constellation. Uh, The Obamas are extraordinarily powerful. Uh, They have allies in the city in terms of the mayor. Uh, They have allies in Washington in the Biden administration, uh, including the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who has direct oversights over this situation. And in this particular case, they're not trying to take private property and to put it into public hands. It's the converse situation where they're trying to take public property and to put that public property into private hands. And so the case essentially is going to turn on how we resolve, and we'll have to resolve them quickly, two sets of issues. One is, is the Obama Foundation largely exempt from all the environmental regulations that apply to everybody else? And two, is this a breach of the city's fiduciary duties uh, to convey out a 99-year lease use agreement, USE agreement, which is really a long-term lease with a different name, uh, consistent with their obligations as fiduciaries for the citizens at large. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're going too fast. Okay. The first first point I get, environmental concerns about what the construction would actually do to the parkland and so on. The second point is a a legal point that you may need to reiterate for the slower people in the audience like me to fully understand. What fiduciary responsibility? Well, it's a Roman term and a fiduciary is a trustee. Okay. And so to start with the simplest illustration, um, if you're a trustee and you have somebody's property, you're entitled to earn a fee for your services, but you cannot decide that you're going to transfer it to your favorite spouse or friend and get back nothing in return. Uh, so the rule has always been that you're bound essentially to manage it for the best interest of the beneficiaries. 
And it also turns out that one of the reasons that you do this, or ways that you do this, is to make sure that the trust continues to hold the trust property, or if it gives it away, that it gets back something of equal greater value in return. Chicago, the city of Chicago is the trustee in this case. Well, it turns out the city or the park district, you know, there's a debate as to which, are the trustees. The land in question is 20 acres of Jackson Park at a minimum. Mm -hmm. Uh, We try to figure out what this stuff is worth doing a few back-of-the-envelope comparisons. And a figure north of $200 million is not an implausible estimate for that particular situation. Uh, The transaction in question calls for the transfer of the property to the Obama Foundation on this 99-year use agreement slash lease for the princely sum of $10. And then what the Obama Foundation will do is build the building at its own expense, which, of course, doesn't cover the cost of land. But even worse than this, in order to build it there, what you have to do is to knock out four roads and cut down a thousand trees and disrupt traffic in perpetuity. The city is conveying title to the land on which the Obama Presidential Center would be built to a private entity, the foundation, for free, basically. Yes, exactly. And then now, is that unprecedented in the history of presidential centers in other cities like the Kennedy, the JFK uh, thing here in uh, Boston? Absolutely. This is, by the way, this is not a library. This is a center. Uh, if you wanted to build a library, it would have to be much less grandiose. There's a statute known as NARA, the National Archives and Records Act, which limits the size of libraries to 70 feet high. This thing is going to be 235 feet high, but it's going to be built at the edge of a lagoon. And so you're going to have to sink all sorts of bearings into the ground, pylons of one sort or another, which my guess is probably have to go 50 feet, may easily have to go further. Not even clear who's going to pay for that. You then have to control closed many roads. And those road closes were estimated four years ago to cost $170 million. A more honest estimate probably be closer to twice that figure given inflation and overrun that you have. And that's going to be picked up by the city, the state, and by the national government. Um, So you do this. Then, of course, you destroy trees. Once you destroy the trees, all the land that the trees serve, and there's a thousand old growth major trees, it's going to start the shift. And then you're going to try to build this Obama presidential center right next to a lagoon when you're not even sure that the land will be able to hold it. And you're not even sure who has to take up the bag if it turns out the project is abandoned uh, because the leases are not really spec- you know, clear on these kinds of things. So as a trust matter, we regard this as the single most one-sided transaction that you could ever imagine. Uh, the sensible thing for them to have done was to find land that is not in the middle of a public park. Uh, we've identified the site to the west of Washington Park, about 10 acres. We actually retained an article, an architect, a very eminent architect who could show you what you could build on that. And they could purchase that land from the city uh, for a market value rate without having any of these environmental reviews and so forth. Uh, but they steadfastly refused to do this. To give you an idea of the level Because they of, want the lakefront uh, They site. want the fancy Park Avenue. Address. And the University of Chicago proximity? Well, the University proximity is equal on the other oh, side. Oh, I see. It's on the other side of the university. Yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, six of one, half a dozen of okay. the other quite okay. But to give you an idea of how the vanity plays into this, uh, this is near the now Griffin's Museum of Science and Industry, uh, which is a 70-story building. Uh, the Obamas would like this thing to be seen not only from the lakefront and Lakeshore Drive, but also, of course, the Midway, which was built by Frederick Law Olmsted in the you know 1860s and then for the World's Fair, 
They want it to be seen along the midway. So they have to move the thing 100 feet further north, which means they now have to shut down the midway plaisance going east and completely disrupt traffic. So this thing can be seen everywhere. And the city is essentially laid down. Every demand that they make is immediately yielded to. Every demand is yielded to unanimously. There's no opposition inside the government. And so what we have argued is that this is a delegation of public power to private parties, and the private parties use it not for public advantage, but for their own advantage. Is there any private gain here? I mean, I understand that the foundation would be the beneficiary of the city's largesse, but are are there any um, grifters uh, in the woodwork? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, we put aside the contractors and the community benefit agreements because those things are going to have to be done no matter where you build this particular situation. Um, but, you know, the Obamas will have a private suite in this particular building. Uh, there'll be all sorts of concessions that will be in this building in a convention center, and they will be able to keep uh, the revenues from these things. They will put offices in this building, which may not be pertaining to the tower's own operation, but to the larger operations of the Obama Center. And to the extent that you could then use this as a marketing device, your first OPC could then lead to a second and third OPC because you're only allowed to build one public library, right? But you could build as many private centers as you want. And so, you know, the possibility of brand extension by building things in other cities is there. So the Obamas stand to make a very tidy sum out of this situation. Uh, the city is going to have to pick up all the expenses and the traffic disruptions and the lost trees and so forth. So I regard this as the single most one-sided deal you've ever seen. Um, and we've tried to stop it. And the first time through, we lost. And Judge Blakey took the position that if you sign the papers correctly, you've answered all the requirements of a trust doctrine. Now, think of that as a real doctrine. You can always sign papers correctly. And then he said, oh, and if you have to talk about net benefits so long as there is a single benefit whatsoever to the public, all the costs of the public can be ignored. Wow. So, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic doctrine. There is no organized political, I understand you're making a legal argument, you're in court. There's no organized political opposition, effective I would think this would be a big fat target for a left of center populist kind well, of rabble rouser. There are some, but the all that main there are some, but they're not all that strong. Uh, we work with all of these particular groups and we put on demonstrations and you know, publish newsletters and so forth. Uh, but essentially, uh, the Obama name is extraordinarily powerful. And, you know, most people in Chicago understand that if he's against you, your career is effectively over. If he's for you, you can go all sorts of other places. And so we can't get anybody to do it. The Friends of the Park, which had led the litigation, and I had worked on this one, too, again, pro bono, back in 2003 to keep the toilet bowl off the top of Soldier Field. Right. Remember, they wanted to expand that. Uh, That was fought by the Friends of the Park, which was an organization. They tried to stop the Lucas Center, uh, an ill-advised move, which made much more sense inside or near the park, given the structure of the investment. And so they basically opted out of this situation. And no other environmental organization except the relatively small one, one by a woman named Stephanie Franklin on the Nichols Park Association, um, is involved in this particular case. Uh, so uh, we sort of try to do everything we can. I, I published a little editorial with my co-counsel Michael Rackless in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, The irony is that the Bears may be picking up their footprints out of Soldier Field because it's still too small, moving to Arlington, breaking their lease, at which point the city would have ruined the great stadium uh, for absolutely nothing. 
when this is done and how it will be done is not certain. But this is not just idle talk. The Bears have taken an option on Arlington Racetrack. Okay, now um, I'm, a, I'm a Chicago native, and I remember the old Soldiers Field. I, I remember seeing some good football games there. Yep. What exactly – I've been gone for 40 years. So what exactly – uh, has happened to soldiers who they did succeed with the extension with what you're calling the toilet bowl. Yes. What happened is to go back in 1918, when this thing was built, it was a memorial to the dead soldiers of the United States. And they built this beautiful thing, a gorgeous place. It had a very large athletic field, which you could use for track and for soccer. And then it became the bears home uh, starting around. Uh, they became the home in the seventies, starting around the year 1995, it became very clear that you couldn't run that place effectively unless you put skyboxes in. The only way you could put skyboxes in was to dig deep and to go down, which meant that you had to shrink the size of the field. Then you had to build on top of it. And so this improvement, so-called, cost $600 million to put into place, uh, paid for largely out of hotel taxes and so forth. And a lot of disruption, nothing like the Obama Center, but a lot of disruption. Yeah. And Michael... Um, and I worked together trying to block this in court. And we were met by very hostile resistance on the part of the city um, and the state and the court saying, look, I mean, you're going to renovate a ramshackle stadium. How could that not be in the public interest? Well, we had at the time put together a plan uh, for putting in a stadium with a dome and a retractable roof, which would be located near White Sox Stadium so you could share parking facilities and other things. We put this thing forward. We tried to introduce this at the trial, and the judge refused to allow any evidence in of a superior site that you could operate. And we got absolutely thumped. And then we got thumped in the Illinois Supreme Court, where they spent their time wondering why it is that we had even the temerity to challenge such a wonderful deal. So this thing is in place. And now, of course, you know, and the parents are changing. leaving anyway. And you've still got that loss. You disrupted the lakefront. Uh, everything was bad about this deal. But that is small potatoes because the soldier field was built within the original footprint, right? In this case, you have to take out, if you remember, Cornell Drive, a six-lane road. Um, that's going to be gone. They call this an improvement. So when they tried to justify this, they put that improvements to, to Jackson Park, uh, included cutting down a 1,000 trees and knocking down this thing. And the great advantage is that even though the park will be narrower because they have to expand Lakeshore Drive, you're allowed to walk through the park without having to cross Cornell Drive. And so you're willing to pay God knows how much in terms of direct cash and total dislocations and so forth for this benefit. And so when they write the survey, every time you talk to them, they call it an improvement. Indeed, that's the heading of their neutral survey. So if it's an improvement, how could it be against the public interest, right? Well, I mean, this is straight Orwellian talk. They're playing with words, yeah. Um, and, and, And you just can't do it. Well, now, um, Obama left office in uh, 2017. We're four and yeah. a half years down the, the road from that, yeah. and the ground hasn't been broken yet. Again, is that unprecedented in the history of presidential centers? Yes, this has taken far longer to do because of it's not only the objections that we have. Let me uh, put it there. We haven't talked about the environmental piece yet. Okay. Right? Uh, and so what happens is if you want to build something like this, there are a whole series of environmental statutes um, that you have to start to deal with. And so what you do is you have to put into place various panels to evaluate these things. And under the modern American bureaucratic structure, you must always have advisory committees and consulting parties and so forth before you can move. So these things start to move at a pretty glacial pace, even in the best of times. So they were running these surveys. 
And I actually attended one of the meetings that they did in August 5th when I was counsel in 2019. And it was a straight Kafkaesque operation. Uh, the city ran the hearing, even though it was supposed to be run by these independent agencies. And what they did is they had two hours, and this is the way the time was allocated. The first 15 minutes was spent introducing everybody on the panel, and then with the usual bromide saying how much we value all of the contributions that you are about to make in your role as public citizens to the improvement of the city of Chicago. Right? Then what they did is they had speeches by all of the people representing the various agencies in the cities, all of whom uh, were essentially determined under these circumstances to make this go through. There had been a written assessment of effects under Section 7106 uh, of the Historical Preservation Act, and it was damning with respect to the way in which it looked at this project from an aesthetic point of view. Uh, Olmstead designed, you know, maybe 100 parks or close to that, large and small. Not a single one of them has ever been decommissioned or wrecked. This is one that they were going to do. The report had all sorts of objections to it. And the committee basically said, uh, the experts, oh, uh, we faced these kinds of reports before. We'll get over this one like we got over the other one. It wasn't as though they said, hey, let's rethink this thing. They just said, let's use our ingenuity to beat it. Then people started to ask questions, but they couldn't ask questions. What they did is they were told to submit something you know, unwriting uh, to the moderator, who is a woman named Abby Monroe, who is an officer of the city. And then what she'd do is she'd shuffle through the papers, pick out the questions she'd like and ask them, and alter the ones that she didn't like so there was something else. You could see people in the audience getting very restive at this little bit of an authoritarian exercise. And before the whole thing could explode in this two-hour meeting, around 50 minutes into it, we said, let's break out at the session. They stopped the collective saying, let's go talk to the people on the panel inside uh, the, the lobby where we could have some refreshments. So essentially, you could get no more deliberation. And every panel they ran was essentially a carbon copy of this kind of operation. And then they get the city librarian and architectural historian to say, oh, there's nothing so terrible about wrecking this particular park. So it was a straight inside job. And the reports finally came out with a lot of stuff in February. All of them essentially said, you are entitled to a Fonzie. That's a term which I doubt you know, uh, but it's a piece of jargon. It means finding of no significant impact. Okay. okay. And on the environmental thing, you do two stages. First, you do a preliminary study, and if you find a, you know, a significant impact, then you have to do a detailed environmental impact statement. Uh, the process has been widely abused in many cases to stop pipelines and things like that. For example, the Canadian pipeline and the DAPL, the Dakota Access pipeline, yes. have been held up for years by silly objections. But in this particular case, you're not worried about the question of whether in about 10 years from now there may be a leak that may damage somebody. You're worried about the immediate destruction of a thousand trees. And so what happens is they dutifully find that the FONSI is appropriate, meaning they don't have any further statement. And so they file this in February. We get this thing and we file for our preliminary injunction. We file in April. And then immediately the thing is slowed up because we have these preliminary fights over which judge should hear the case. Uh, but when you look at the title of their environmental report, it refers to a statute known as UPA, uh, which is the urban, uh, basically recreational reclamation statute uh, for getting urban parks back. When you take some land out for public use as a highway, you've got to replace it. Uh, they do not once discuss either the National Environmental Policy Act, and they don't discuss the Transportation Act, even though uh, Cornell Drive is a major thoroughfare. Lakeshore Drive is a major thoroughfare and so forth. And they don't destruct the Historical Preservation Act. 
And their explanation in one sentence, without citation, is these are local matters that are not within the scope of the federal government. There has never been a finding like that in any single case in the history of the world. Um, uh, and you're, you're, you're really up against it here, it sounds like. Again, as a layperson from the outside, it sounds like you've got your, got your... If they cut those trees, it's game over, isn't it? I mean, once the trees are cut, you might as well go ahead with the rest of the project. Well, I, I don't think it's game over because you still have the question of the transportation disruption. But it's a huge loss, which is why we have negotiated with difficulty to have a preliminary injunction issued on August 12th, if we can get it, or August 13th, because they have basically said, we got the consent from Mr. Buttigieg. It wasn't the consent that he wrote down, said, I hereby have reviewed this thing and consented to the process. There is a set of rules uh, in the Department of Transportation, which says that if a lesser official decides to approve the thing, that will count as consent unless it's overridden by the Secretary of uh, Transportation. So he just sits silently, and this thing now has effect. Uh, let me just give you one irony, because the, Obama, uh, the, the Biden administration, you know, is an environmental hall. Uh, so That's they what do I two things. When they, they really favor public transportation, and they're against cars, right? Now, our alternative site, uh, which is located to the west of Washington Park, sits over the red line, near the green line, near the Dan Ryan Expressway, with bus service and so forth. And it's easy access from all of these things. This place has no public transportation whatsoever. So you have to drive cars into a parking lot and it's a cul-de-sac. So you go in and you come back out the other way. I mean, our architect, Graham Balkany, has looked at this and he says it's a logistical nightmare because you have to have deliveries, construction work, passengers, security operations, right. everybody coming in the same narrow passageway uh, on this little quote unquote, the government's term is sliver of land. And they could have done it in this other location. So they don't want to do this. The second thing is um, the Biden administration quite rightly says, uh, we want to make sure that migratory birds are going to be killed. right? Uh, so they want to strengthen the protections against them. Well, it turns out that the Obama Tower at 335 feet high is in the middle of what we call the Mississippi Flyway, uh, which is the major north-south bird migration route. And it is understood by most people that you put a 300, you know, 235 foot building there. Um, a lot of people are going to smash into it and die. Uh, so the Obama Foundation says we realize this and its concession runs as follows. We won't cut the trees down until this season of bird flying is over in late August. Or, That's or just one it? year. Well, thank you, Glenn. <laughs> Wait a minute. One year, and uh, then you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that. <laughs> no, I mean you have to be a rocket scientist to do the other thing. So these guys essentially play fast and loose with every environmental statute, and then they do things that completely contradict uh, what is <clears throat> happening by the Biden administration elsewhere. But sometimes they're wrong. I mean, one of the things they've done, for example, is they want to reduce the number of cars going into Union Station from about fifteen hundred to four hundred. Because they want people who are going to go to the convention hall and take their suitcases on the train to take scooters, right, and bikes to get to the station or to a formal event. And Eleanor Holmes Norton writes a letter in February of this year saying, please consider shutting this thing down until you reduce the number of trucks. Mr. Buttigieg comes to the action and says, we'll consider this, puts a multi-million dollar, billion dollar construction program on hold, which will relieve congestion on roads until they can work this out. At the same time, it turns out the Obama Center, which is way off the beaten track and will not sustain large traffic because it doesn't have moving exhibits, they're going to put 400 parking spaces for that. 
400 parking spaces for the Union Station, 400 parking spaces for the Obama Center. Wow. What is this about? It's about power and about getting your way and about being Barack Hussein Obama. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Uh, now, if I recall correctly, that neighborhood west of Washington Park in uh, Chicago is a pretty depressed area that could use a little bit of investment and a little bit of economic activity and whatnot. It's absolutely yeah. right. And let me tell you what happens. We have a plan. We looked at the map where the vacant lands are, what could be filled in. And you could actually get some synergies. There were no physical synergies between the Jackson Park site with its Park Avenue address and anything else in the city. In fact, one of the things that's happened in the last couple of days now that they've closed the roads, I keep on getting, I guess now five or six kind of communications from people who live in Hyde Park on 56th Street and so forth saying, what am I supposed to do? Is the traffic going to come by my house? Are we going to be able to do this? And so that market is going to be wrecked uh, by virtue of this, because what you're going to have to do is to divert the cars that would normally go on the Midway East perhaps as far north as 56th Street, where all the apartment houses are overlooking the park. And it's going to create a competitive mess because you still have the Science and Museum, the Museum of Science and Industry, right, which is sharing the same bottleneck cul-de-sac. And they've never done any decent traffic studies to tell you how uh, the peak road traffic is going to go or what's going to happen to the neighboring streets. So this is going to be a local disaster in terms of all of these things. And it will roil as it's already beginning to roil the real estate markets unless, you know, we can put a stop to this thing. Well, I mean, uh, I'm not a particularly public minded citizen, as you know, I just kind of stick to my own business. But this is such an utter outrage in terms of the way this thing has been marketed and presented uh, that I have spent a very large fraction of my time now over two years. Uh, trying to stop this thing, writing paper after paper and so forth. Uh, it's very disheartening when you see very bad opinions written by people. Uh, Amy Barrett was a judge on the Seventh Circuit, and the opinion she wrote uh, basically dismissing half of our case and ruling against us on the other half of the case was a complete mishmash. Um, and so now we have to battle that. It's not as though we find any friends. There hasn't been a single judicial ruling that has come down which has given us what it is that I would think to be rather elementary belief in accordance with basic principles. And now we're going to have to go into court again and have to argue in front of the judge who already ruled against our public trust arguments in a previous case, which was voided because we didn't have standing, a technical issue that I don't want to trouble people with, but it was in fact probably a right decision by Judge Barrett on that point. Uh, So we have to fight that. Uh, But, you know, you fight with what you have. And you hope that the strength of your arguments will be able to carry the day, even in a uh, in somewhat of a hostile environment. But as your last to your point is, you could have an enormous amount of development outside Washington Park. Indeed, when the Obamas start talking about giving money to help the community, right, as a kind of a, a way to stop this thing going, there's no place to develop near Washington Jackson Park. So all the money is going to go to Washington Park, and that's where they could have put the foundation anyhow. So it's just a lost opportunity. I just wonder, is there any contemporary historian or political scientist or someone in the bowels of the University of Chicago or the University of Illinois Chicago Circle Campus or whoever who's interested in writing what should be a very interesting book about this whole dynamic, whatever the outcome is? This sounds like it's ripe for, um, you know, a really uh, trenchant. 
you know, incisive, analytical. Uh, uh, well, one of our, uh, our plaintiffs is a man named Tom Mitchell. And Tom is a professor of English at the University of Chicago, but he's also a landscape architecture and critic with respect to all of this stuff. Okay. And, you know, he has basically submitted a dynamite, um, uh, basically declaration indicating everything that's wrong. And, you know, one of the things he tries to say, and this is sort of ironic, is if you look at the English parks done under royalty, they were always closed and removed from the public at large, right? Uh, they were simply a greater expression of the elegance that the royal families gave unto themselves. He says the American parks were always exactly the opposite way. There's no gates around them. There are roads through them from which people can come and go. They were meant to be completely democratic type institutions in which widespread access um, was the central theme. And he says it takes a long time to build this up. And now what you do is you see the Obama Center coming in, taking this clearly democratic institution and trying to privatize it uh, for the benefit of one of America's great elites. And yeah, so I think, you know, Tom might well write about this. He's already been pretty vocal on this stuff and the stuff he did for our declaration and several letters that he did. In fact, uh, before he got involved in this lawsuit, Tom had circulated a letter, uh, which I and 200 other people signed, saying the University of Chicago has no business backing the Obama Center. And I believe that to be true. Uh, the university has pledged, I don't know, something in the order of $30 million to help this thing go. Originally, it was supposed to be a South Side operation, uh, but they haven't backed off now that it's in the uh, or Washington, in the, in the Jackson Park area. And, you know, I think it's a very serious question as to whether an institution which is charitable ought to be giving money away to another institution, uh, which may call itself charitable, but essentially has a completely unrelated mission. Uh, it's complicated, though, because the most prominent political analyst in the University of Chicago is somebody you've heard of, David Axelrod. Oh, yeah, um, I've heard of him. Yeah, who is a longtime political operative. Well, he has this university principal now position now where he runs talk shows interviewing various people. And at the same time, he blogs on behalf of... But he's not a tenured member, voting member of the faculty, Not a tenured member of the faculty, I don't believe, but he certainly has a permanent position doing this broadcasting. Yeah. And so, you know, he basically runs a large part of the media operation out of the University of Chicago. Where are the trustees? Where, where, where are the overseers? Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, I was very disappointed in the old administration because they didn't do it. We're getting a new president of the University of Chicago where I'm no longer a faculty member. I'm still a visiting uh, professor and so forth. And I would hope that they would revisit uh, this particular situation. Uh, but, you know, when you want to talk about being David, uh, it's not that you're dealing with one Goliath, right? You got a whole slew of them. You got the Obamas. You've got the Biden administration. You got the Lightfoot administration. You got the University of Chicago against you. Um, and you know, all of a sudden you say, can I do this? Uh, the only thing that keeps us going is the strength of our arguments, which I think are overpowered. Well, Godspeed to you. I'm, I'm on your side for Thank what it's you. worth. Listen, let's uh, shift gears a little bit uh, since I have you here, your great legal mind. And there's all this talk now about banning critical race theory, about critical race theory, uh, running the country aground and whatnot. And um, I, I remember Derek Bell. I remember, and I, she's still living, Patricia Williams and uh, Kimberly Crim, Crenshaw and these people yeah. way back in the 80s when I was a young Afro studies professor at Harvard University reading all this stuff. And uh, I never would have guessed that 35 years on, it would become this uh, intellectual behemoth that's uh, gobbling up our 
cultural institutions and whatnot. And I just wanted to get your reflections a little bit on how you, you know, how you uh, see both the substance of the doctrine, also the controversy left right okay. uh, here in the uh, in our current day. And, you know, uh, well, I go back even further than you. Right. I started teaching in 1968. And yeah, one of my colleagues at the University of Southern California, the director of the Western Center on Law and Poverty was Derek Bell. Ah, and we were very good friends at the time. Um, his late wife, then Jewel, you know, we used to go to the beach and all the rest of this stuff. Okay. And, um, you know, they were very energetic in, in trying to push things. The major things that they pushed, which I was strongly opposed to then and now, was the, the stuff about having state funding of universities, right, that, that took place. And that was done through the Western Center of Law and Poverty, essentially putting all the control of the schools in, in, in the hands of the of the state, so in order to get welfare equalization, which meant that local control diminished. And that, of course, is one of the things that can lead to this, because the moment you start getting a single state that makes all of these decisions, the element of monopoly comes there. And if you can spin the state in one direction or another, it turns out that you can spin lots of local governments as well. Moving forward, uh, you asked the question about the critical race studies. Uh, you know I'm not a fan of it. Uh, uh, I'm not certainly trying to be an apologist for slavery. Uh, as a Roman lawyer, I can tell you in Justinian, the first thing he says is slavery is against the law of nature. And by the way, this is how it works, uh, because <laughs> slavery was, in fact, a very established institution. And the Roman law of slavery was an incredibly sophisticated set of doctrines, uh, which helps you understand a lot about modern corporations and a lot of other stuff. And I still teach Roman law. And, you know, first teaching Roman law, you have to teach all this stuff. OK, uh, so you have to do all of this thing. Now, if it comes to the question of banning it, uh, there are two ways you have to think about it. Richard, I, I want to slow you down a minute. Um, what is critical race theory? Just very basic. This is 101, okay? What is it and what's wrong with it? Well, uh, critical is a word which began with critical legal studies and critical race studies. Essentially, what they do is it's a position which says we will criticize these current institutions, not because of mistakes that they make in individual cases, but because we think that the entire legal structure and social structure that is in place is basically corrupt. Uh, the word in the critical race studies area it turns out to be systematic racism. And the argument is that there are certain powerful institutions run largely by white males who are white supremacists who control all of these things. And the only way in which they can prevail is to force the people in power out of the power by a frontal assault on them, which means that they have to restructure a favorite word of these things the various kinds of institutions, the schools, the military, the State Department, and everything else, so as to make sure that its first task is to eliminate the vestiges of the kinds of dominant racism that they have. Okay, and this is a spinoff from critical legal studies, which is a Marxian-influenced uh, yeah. uh, uh, attack on the legal establishment or the conventional legal order. Yes, but there's a huge difference. Legal studies had no particular target. Right? It didn't like doctors. Uh, whereas critical race studies does have a very powerful target and they've managed to organize. Uh, what they do is they claim that the dominance lies with everybody else. And so therefore they're entitled to use overt and powerful means to shut it down. Uh, uh, in order to make this thing go, what you always have to do is to talk about racism as being an institutional stuff. Because the moment you actually start to attack Mr. Jones for being a racist, he will defend himself and will break it up. So it's everybody, meaning nobody. And so what you do is you essentially abuse these anonymous people, um, tell you they're terrible, and then you say that's a justification for us doing what we want. 
And look, if they want to basically spouse things around um, in the general public domain, I think they're entitled to do that, like the Marxists were. But what they want to do is to take over the schools. And the question of who controls education has always been a much more difficult issue uh, because it turns out that, A, you have to give administrators some degree of power over this particular subject matter, but B, you have to worry about whether or not you respect certain kinds of minority rights. So an early version of the dilemma is do you teach about not only evolution, but creationism in public school. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very hard question to figure out what you do. Uh, one of the options is you could teach only, and I think you're allowed to do this evolution. Some people say you have to uh, address the creationist arguments, but that leaves you free to basically say, well, they're not empirically supported. Yeah. And so you could criticize them. Uh, what the critical race study people want to do is they want to take over the curriculum and basically make sure that nobody who disagrees with them has a chance to speak, uh, which is, in my mind, the essence of totalitarianism. So to take but one simple dispute, was the revolution from Great Britain designed to preserve slavery in the United States, given the fact that the English courts in the 1770s had basically banned slavery in the colonies? Uh, Lord Mansfield had done that. Well, I mean, you know, New York abolished slavery in about the time of the uh, freedom from England. Uh, there were huge abolitionist movements going on there. And what happens is, no, it turns out that all of this was done with a single person, and you can't get any disagreement. What has happened in the United States generally is well, happening. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Richard. We do have disagreement. This is the whole controversy about the 1619 Project yeah. and, and Nicole Hannah-Jones' essay and some very good historians uh, my colleague here at Brown, Gordon Wood, uh, Sean yeah. Willens at Princeton, others yeah. have spoken up and, and said that it's dead wrong to claim that the the uh, uh, founding fathers were um, largely uh, fighting uh, Britain in order to be free to continue slavery was false. Yes. So it, it's not as if it hasn't been contested. Oh, it's been contested effectively. I mean, okay. again, you know, one of the things to understand about this is when you talk about Will Lance and Gordon Wood and so forth, you're talking about A, eminent historians, and B, you're not talking about classical liberals like myself, right? I mean, I think these guys, if you had to put it to them, would be sort of comfortable with the 1930s type New Deal, sure. notwithstanding the fact that it had all sorts of rather ugly racist elements that were built into it, which slowly were sort of removed, but when people say, hey, you know, the New Deal was well, also... Well, it never been enacted without the Southern uh, Congressional yes, Barons uh, going along with Roosevelt in the first place. This and is, it was also viciously anti-Semitic at the same time. I mean, if you've ever read David Wyman's book on the abandonment of the Jews... I have not. Well, it's a book which explains how it was that both Britain and the United States, knowing full well of the dangers, shut their doors to any Jewish immigrants coming into either Palestine or the United States because of the polite form of anti-Semitism that existed in this country. Have you ever seen the movie with Gregory Peck called Gentleman's Agreement? Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, well, I mean, that sort of stuff had really very, very powerful stuff. And Roosevelt had many people in his cabinet in very high positions who were anti-Semitic. The same thing was true in England. Roosevelt was actually pro-Israeli. But remember, he was out of power by 1945. Clement Attlee took in, and the Labour Party's always had a much stronger anti-Semitic streak, which led to part of the huge dislocations that took place in Palestine. So, okay. I mean, our history is filled with all sorts of anti-everything. But, but wanna I just... want to stay on critical race theory, and, okay, I, and you said just... something that I thought was really important, which is that the claim of systemic racism generalizes the in, the the uh, the party responsible for the injury, such that. You no longer have a specific individual who's been accused of an act 
you have a society that's been accused of some ether, some atmospheric yeah. wrong. And that means that there's no way really to effectively respond to the charge. Uh, and uh, it means that people are going to be making claims at law based upon uh, uh, non-rebuttable uh, assertions of injury or something like that. I well, mean, can you elaborate on is, that a little bit? Because that seemed, yeah, I haven't heard that before. It was, what happens is, I mean, I've seen this in, you know, in particular contexts, for example, is there uh, discrimination based on rates and the provision of organ donors through the um, uh, the organizations that provided in the United States? Well, I mean, the answer is probably no, because they're technical grounds. But you could raise that. And I've been to many a medical injury meeting in which this claim is started to give. And you look around, every doctor in the room is essentially a liberal Democrat. None of them are guilty, but they're all prepared to say that the system is willing to do this. And the reason that you never attack individuals is they will defend themselves. And if you hear enough individual defenses coming up, you'll realize that, you know, this charge is completely bogus. And so what happens is if you make it ethereal, then all the people who essentially are liberal can join in the attack because they're not attacking themselves individually. And so it's a very, very clever strategy. Now, what happens is some people are willing to step up. There's that battle that is taking place between the teachers unions on the one hand and that black woman, I think, who's trying to say, bring them on, I'll fight them. And Joseph Epstein, just this morning, he's no relation of mine, wrote this piece about the culture war saying this is so terrible, we have no choice but to continue to fight on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. So what's happened is I think, in fact, the effort to take over the curriculum has brought forth a charge of overreach. And you now see the 1776 movement coming abroad. Of which I would say, we understand there's a lot of things that are wrong with the history of the United States, uh, but there are also a lot of things that were nice. You mentioned or before the show that I wrote a book called Forbidden Grounds on the anti-discrimination laws back in the early 1990s, right. in which I trace at some painful length um, some of the history of segregation that existed. But you start with that, and then, you know what, starting around 1915, uh, the iceberg starts to melt, and it's a bunch of white conservative guys who are basically breaking it down. So uh, the grandfather clauses, which said you can only vote if your grandfather can vote, yeah. all of a sudden those are declared unconstitutional. Yeah. And then the checkerboard map, in a case called Buchanan and Wally, which says blacks can live on the black squares and whites can live on the white scale, that struck down at that particular year. Then, you know, 1930, you get the uh, Scottsboro boards, right? A place called Powell versus Alabama. And all of a sudden, these convictions are reversed. The poor kids' lives are ruined, uh, but it starts to change them. The ACLU comes along, and it turns out you now have very effective litigation, and it forms an alliance with the NAACP, which was formed in 1910. To give you an idea of what the climate was, Wilson had segregated the the civil service in 1913 or 14 because he was a kind of a, a Southerner from Virginia uh, and New Jersey. Yes. And the NAACP, two years before, said, we can't challenge this in court. Because there would have been no way they could have won after President Plessy v. Ferguson. I mean, and they knew this, right? Uh, but by the time you start getting to the 1930s, all of this is beginning to unravel, thank God. And the first of the blows in, in many ways, as they give you a 1946 case, I'm sure you've never heard of the Dormant Commerce Clause as a working doctrine. Dormant Commerce Clause. No, I have not heard of it, but I want everybody to know that this litany on which you were embarked is in the service of establishing that, notwithstanding a history of slavery and racism and Jim Crow, the legal institutions and the political orientation of the United States of America has been able effectively 
in the fullness of time to address and redress those injuries. Yes, and hence, Fourth of July is something that we should be celebrating, all things considered, not being unaware of the historical problems that you have identified. Yeah. So essentially what happens <laughs> is you used to run trains on interstate railroads. And in the northern states, you'd, separate, you'd, you'd integrate. And then you go down to Virginia, you'd have to separate. And this slows down commerce. The Dormant Commerce okay. Clause says that if there's an impediment to the free flow of people on trains and buses and so forth, you have to have a strong justification to let it go. And the Southerners put forward segregation, and the Supreme Court struck it down. So the first blow on the transportation stuff comes out of the Commerce Clause, not out of the Equal Protection Clause. You know, four years later, there's a case called Sweat v. Painter, in which there was separate but equal. What does that mean? There was a black school which was put in some unheated room with 16 books uh, as a substitute for the white school at the University of Texas Law School. And the Supreme Court, in what was actually a dicey case, struck that down as well. And all the major deans of the law schools, Irving Griswold, Edward Levy, and so forth, um, they basically signed the brief saying that this is not allowed to stand. So for the first time, you start seeing the establishment um, inside the institutions weighing in. And, you know, I keep reminding people, it's not all that easy to weigh in when the dominant culture runs the other way. Uh, these were not sunshine sailors. These were guys who took some personal risk and they would prevail. Brown comes along. Of course, it's a very controversial decision. They backslide a little bit in Brown, too, and so forth. But then what you do is you have Cooper and Aaron. There's another case in which it turns out that uh, with a little bit of dicey and maneuvering, what it is said is that the uh, Supreme Court can tell the world what is, in fact, constitutional. The branches are not equal and coordinate. And they got to do something about this. And so when Eisenhower did it, essentially, they gave him cover. Um, and you then start to see the movement and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, when I was raised in the early 60s, the way we did this history was so much different. We said we started in a bad place and we managed to work ourselves to a good faith. And we tended to do at that time at Columbia College, for example, was to praise the improvements rather than to damn the institutions for taking so long to improve. And that would be your preference for pedagogy I still think today. I mean, look, I, I don't know. Do you remember... Uh, Marian Anderson and the, oh yes, the uh, opera singer that uh, yes, sang. the great singer and they the daughters of the revolution refused to let her do it in their home. Yeah. Remember what Eleanor Roosevelt did? She invited she her, her somewhere to sing. sing. It was on the, the White House of the Washington Monument. Oh, right? the monument. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, and then I don't know if you remember about the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah, I remember that. But listen, I got to stop because we're running out of time. And That's and, what, and what, what you're doing now is, I think, giving voice to one idea an idea which I would affirm about how we should be teaching our kids. Yes. What the critical race theory advocates want to do is teach them in a very different way. And you liken this to the creation science versus uh, Darwinian evolution debate and how you manage it. How, well, me, and, and the question I have is how can we manage this? I mean, one thing you can do is get local school boards, you know, meetings and parents coming in and demanding what role is the law playing here because states are passing statutes that are trying to forbid the teaching of critical race theory and, re and, and defendants of critical race theory are saying that's uh, violating the, uh, the free speech rights of the. Well, uh, not when you're doing in terms of running a school. I mean, school boards. Have so you're right okay to... with statutes banning. Would you ban no. the teaching of Marxism, et cetera? No, I mean, as I say, it's all, I'm not, I would not even ban the teaching of critical race theory. 
when I would demand the, would ban a situation in which the only thing you're allowed to teach is critical race theory and treat everything else as disinformation. They have to agree that they're at risk along with everybody else. And in fact, uh, Glenn, the single most dangerous word in the entire lexicon these days is the assertion of too many people who ought to know better that the people whom they disagree with are spreading disinformation. And so therefore, we should be able to ban them. And this yeah, is true. some of those people are running huge platforms in Silicon Valley. Yes. Um, but I mean, you know, take eminent scientists, we ban them. Uh, we take conservative publications, we don't put them on Wikipedia and things like that. Now, it turns out that, you know, many of these are people with whom I agree on some issues. I am always at risk to being proved wrong in a debate. What I am not prepared to do is to have somebody who purports to be neutral and say that I can determine who's allowed to participate in the debate. And since your views are misinformation, I can silence you on my platform and try to get other people to do that. I regard that as just defamation of people with whom you start to disagree. I mean, you know, and in many cases, I think what's so ironic about this is that the people who were banned have been turned out to be right. So you mentioned the COVID stuff and the Wuhan laboratories. Well, it was once disgusting conspiracy propaganda to say that might have been a leak that took place in that facility. I know. And now it looks as though the evidence is pretty likely that it wasn't in all the wet markets in all of China. It just happened to be the one next to the virology center that spread the disease. It was probably a leak, probably accidental coming out of that particular center concealed by the Chinese government. Uh, so, I, lost, I, mean, I, I lost a very good friend because at a dinner party, I allowed for the possibility that it might have been a leak. This is before we knew as much as we know now. But I said it could have been. And my my dear friend went ballistic. You're spouting Trump propaganda, I was told. Yes. And uh, now, how can that be that we, we can't even think about these things without it getting mired in the Partisan uh, electoral uh, competition between, uh, you know, Donald Trump and his enemies. Yes, but look, I mean, I just draw a very strong distinction. And let me say this, I'm on this. I basically pleaded in vain, knowingly in vain, that Donald Trump resigned in January of 2017. Uh, because I thought that <laughs> this man would essentially wreck the policies of his administration. Okay, so he had already gotten his benefit. He had won the election, proven his point. So now he could step down, let Mike Pence be president. And let somebody else run it. But the Trump yeah. administration, many of whom are my <laughs> former students and friends and so yeah, I know. Forth, um, are some of the ablest people I've ever seen, and they do not participate in that, whereas the Biden folks who come in on the opposite side are, I think, just wrecking everything. Um, and what you do is you say, well, they were appointed by Trump, so you can't trust them at all. You have to ban them in some kind of way. Uh, you want to find people who break precedents. Let me just mention this because I think it's extremely important. Okay, we have well, a few minutes. Well, there's a funny term out there called comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. And, you know, you ask what it kind of What's funny about that? That's an ordinary language word. It means getting along with your fellows. What it is, is uh, it's the kind of situation in which you say there are a set of implicit social expectations that everybody follows, even though there's no form of legal enforcement. And uh, it turns out if you don't have comedy uh, in that sense, you can't run transitions between institutions because there's going to be no trust when one side goes out and one side goes in. And so you try to figure out, which of the two presidents, Biden or Trump, decided that they would dash comedy in order to get the advantages of a short-term arrangement? Well, Trump never did this. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it turns out that there were many people appointed to an architectural commission. They were terms are supposed to last five years. Uh, but the president says, I can fire you. So either you resign now 
or I'm going to fire you. And then it turns out he forces them out and he puts his own people in there. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, tempt fate here by asking you to expand on your claim that Trump never exhibited a lack of comedy in the way that Joseph Biden has done. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. You try to find cases in which he sort of fires people uh, or changes the rules of the game. Uh, it wasn't that. I mean, for example, yeah, for example. Uh, you know, he runs the pipelines and so forth. It wasn't as though when he said that I disagreed with the decisions of the Obama administration, he reversed it. He couldn't do that. And he knew it was a matter of law. Well, what he could do, and his people did it, is they signed an executive order, which essentially got rid of the decision of the Obama administration in December to require an environmental impact statement to complete the DAPL pipeline, uh, saying that we're going to let the Army Corps of Engineers, which has approved this thing, continue to go forward. And once they did that, it had to be approved by Congress. It was sent to Congress, and Congress did it. Uh, it comes now when you get to the Biden administration, you have another pipeline, right? You're talking about the Keystone XL Yeah, and pipeline. the day he gets into office, he makes spurious claims about the dangers to health and safety, cancel this thing, probably in breach of contract, no consultation with anybody inside the United States or in Canada, opens the United yes. States up to a $15 billion lawsuit. The, the province NASA. of Alberta is suing the United States government well, for this. Should. I mean, so, I mean, you know, this is a very different way to start to handle these kinds of things. Now, it's only possible for him to do that politically because Trump is so hated by a sufficiently large number of people that to say on day one, I'm reversing Trump's decision place and no one will bother with the legal niceties that you're trying to invoke here. I mean, I've written several things on my Hoover column trying to explain the way these things going. Or to give you another illustration, he puts Lena Khan, who's not a competent economist. I'm pretty confident about that. She's now the head of the the Federal Trade Commission, huge organization. And the Wall Street Journal had a piece of saying, well, she's now trying to break the rules that they used to do, saying you needed to have commissions to issue subpoenas. Now she's saying unilaterally that she can do them. And what's her mission? Her mission is to expose the abuse of American corporations. That's the wrong way to put your mission. Your mission is to try to figure out how to make the system of trade efficient. Um, and if that means protecting corporations, you protect them. If it means attacking them, you attack them. But if you basically say they're always in the wrong, then you basically uh, have forfeited any independent judgment on these cases. What does this do? It then leads to Amazon saying, we've got to get rid of this lady because she's already expressed a bias against her. I don't like suits to dismiss judges because of bias. Well, you understand why they're bringing it. But what's happened is the whole system under Biden is now starting to unravel. Because what you do is you get extraordinary claims of privilege and discontinuity. And then this is followed by a political reaction on the other side. Um, One of the things I ask people is to tell me which criminal prosecution undertaken uh, by the Trump administration was in debt. Which was, which criminal prosecution was? A vendetta. A vendetta. Okay. Show me a Trump pursuing vendetta. Is is what you're asking. And you can't can't find any. And you can't find any. Yeah, but on the other hand, you start looking at what Adam Schiff did with respect to the... the I mean, so, you know, and then what they do is they say, we have to destroy, you know, reestablish democracy. Does that mean more shifts? When Nunes actually was telling the truth, then you get to the FISA court and they say, well, we didn't hear about this until the other day when all the irregularities came out. And when, in fact, they had received a year and a half before this detailed statement by Nunes, which they said thanks, but no thanks to. 
Do you I'm think a- that the uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York is pursuing a vendetta against the former administration? Well, I haven't seen the cases, but generally speaking, my view is you tread extremely carefully when you sue people for violations that are said to have taken place years ago on the strength of special investigations, which are done because they were politically associated with a form of figure. And I'm very much against doing that in any case, regardless of who's going in. Not because I think that they're immune from suit as a legal matter. I think in some cases they're not, but it's the same principle about comedy. If you start breaking these things in one direction, then when the other guys start to come into place, it's going to happen. And the same thing happens with the filibuster and so forth. This began when Miguel Estrada, a perfectly qualified man, is blocked from taking a seat on the District of Columbia Circuit Court because people fear that he would be a plausible Supreme Court nominee. And they did not the Hispanic speak to go to a conservative the way in which Clarence Thomas had so-called the black seat. So they did it. And then it's just black ball versus black ball versus black ball. And, and the whole process starts to break down in a kind of a way uh, because it turns out if there's no trust, you cannot make long-term temporal deals. I can't say that if I hold off today, you're going to hold off tomorrow when you've already double-crossed me. Especially and each side believes a, that the other one did it first. In a dynamic political environment where nobody's got two-thirds of the vote, everybody's got 52% or 48% of the vote. So you're switching back and forth all the time. That's Richard Epstein. He's professor of law at New York University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And I'm very glad to count him amongst my, at least my virtual friends. Uh, may, may we break bread together out in Stanford, California sometime soon. Yes, or in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I just signed on as a visiting distinguished fellow at the, the Hoover Institution. So. Well, good for you. I'm thrilled yeah. that you're with us, okay? Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.